0: Exosomes are viruses. They look exactly like viruses. They have the same receptors as viruses, they're the same size. The theory is that viruses come from the outside, invade your cell, and then they take over your cell. Exosome starts in the cell in response to an assault. They surround toxins or cellular debris carry it out of the cell. But the other thing that they do is go to other cells in your body and lock onto their receptors with a message. There's trouble here and you need to adjust. What we're proposing is that viruses which are being called very harmful are actually exosomes that help us to adjust to new things in the environment.
1: Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. This is a provocative episode that will challenge some of your core beliefs when it comes to health and illness. What if the Spanish flu of 1918 was not actually contagious? What if the measles virus has never been isolated? Furthermore, what if the coronavirus known as COVID-19 has also never been isolated? These are just some of the fascinating topics that my guest, Sally Fallon Morell and I debate in this episode. Sally is perhaps best known as the author of Nourishing Traditions, an iconic cookbook that challenges mainstream narrative. She is also the founding president of the Weston A. Price Foundation with nearly 600 chapters globally, and she is the president of New Trends Publishing. Recently, Sally and co-author Dr. Thomas Cowan published The Contagion Myth, why viruses, including coronavirus, are not the cause of disease. This book was banned by Amazon just days before its release. It is causing waves, and Sally and I deeply explore its content and potential impact on the mainstream narrative of COVID-19. You might find it hard to believe everything that Sally says. I do, and I challenge her on many points. Yet what I find even harder to believe is that none of what she says might be true. Discoveries are not made by accepting the norm. Paradigms are not shifted by treading along the same path as everyone who came before. Sally is an explorer who has faced much opposition while also garnering significant support. I strongly encourage you to at least stay open-minded to what she has to say. Our future could depend on it. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Sally Fallon Morell. Sally, welcome to the podcast.
0: Uh, thank you, Todd. It's great to be back with you.
1: Yeah, it's good to see you again. It's been a long time. It's
0: several years, right?
1: Yeah, and I've been a huge advocate and proponent of your work ever since I learned about you many years ago. You've been to Pacific Rim College. You've offered yeah. so much education to our community. Your books are incredible, and the Weston A. Price Foundation that you run, everything you seem to do is is. <laughs> such a benefit to humanity so thank you for that thank you. and and one thing that you've always done which i really appreciate is you've always challenged the narrative you've challenged the norm and in some cases you've really had to stick your neck out for things that you believe in that others don't necessarily think is is worthwhile <laughs> doing yeah. <laughs> exactly
0: my kids call me crazy mom <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: And speaking of one of those things, you have just published a new book, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about, and that is the contagion myth.
0: Right. So right. I
1: thought maybe we could start with that wonderful work of art and the impact that is is having.
0: Well, it was banned on Amazon, so... Congratulations. It's <laughs> something that people don't like. Um, what got me thinking about this was reading um, Arthur Furstenberg's book, uh, The Invisible Rainbow, which is about the effect of electrification of the earth, starting with electricity, but also radar, radio. And then he uh, talks about the rollout of cell phones in the late uh, 1990s. And every time we've had something new come along, we've had illness and the most amazing example he gives is the 1918 flu, Spanish flu, where uh, the Public Health Service tried to prove that this was contagious. And they, they put uh, sick people with well people and the sick people breathed on the well people. They took blood from the sick people and put it in the well people. They took secretions from the sick people and injected them into the well people and not a single well person got sick from this exposure. In other words, the Spanish flu was not contagious. They, they tried and tried to prove it was contagious, and it was not. So the question is, well, what was causing it? And you can imagine their um, perplexity, because if it wasn't contagious, what was causing this worldwide phenomenon that uh, killed up to 50 million people, as far as we know? And uh no, it's only with uh, Furstenberg's work that we finally kind of figured this out. And it was the deployment of radio, radio towers all over the world. It happened all around the same time, but especially on military bases. These are where the biggest radio towers were. And um, so they had the most exposure and the most cases were on military bases. Now, there were other factors that caused so many deaths. Uh, One was the use of aspirin, which was totally uh, contraindicated, and also the fact that the military people had been heavily Mm -hmm. vaccinated with experimental meningitis vaccines, and that made them possibly more vulnerable. But I don't think these were the cause, because this happened all over the world. Anyway, that got me thinking. And then I uh, wrote a blog called Is Coronavirus Contagious? And I was backed up by Tom Cowan, who gave a little talk a 10-minute talk that went viral on the internet where he questioned this notion of contagion so that's what we uh, develop in the book we talk about diseases of the past that were considered contagious but that have perfectly good other explanations and then we focus on the virus and what you find is just stunning it, it, you can isolate a virus. You can find viruses. It's difficult to do, but to prove that a virus is causing a disease, you have to find this one, this particular virus. And there's millions of types of virus, but this particular virus, and a lot of people who have the disease, and then you have to, you know, expose well uh, healthy people to this virus, and see if they get sick. And the shocking thing is that this has never been done. Uh, uh, They've tried with animal models, they've tried with human tissue, and they have not been able to take what they think is the virus, uh, not necessarily the virus, but they think it's the virus, and make uh, these models sick, and certainly not human models.
1: Okay, let's... Let's open this up a little bit. So when you're talking about this virus, you're talking about COVID-19. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Now, I have heard that the actual virus, COVID-19, has actually never been isolated. Is that's,
0: that? That's, that's correct. Now, they you can find a lot of papers that say isolation and characterization of the COVID virus in the titles or somewhere in the text. But the, the process of isolating a virus is, is a very long process, and uh, Tom, my co-author, gives a very good um, analogy. So let's just say you wanna study the effects of caffeine. Well, you can't just study coffee or coffee beans because there's a lot of other things in coffee beans. So you have to separate out the caffeine. And the first thing you do is grind up the beans and um, you know, mix them with hot water that that's not what you can use because there's a lot of other things in there besides caffeine. Then you filter the uh, grounds and stuff out of the, the slurry or slush and you get coffee. Okay. Uh, that's not caffeine. You still have to do a further isolation or separation to get the pure caffeine. And that is not what has not been done. We've just gotten to the coffee stage with what they're calling isolation, but it's not true isolation. They they have not gone that next step and actually gotten down to where they have pure caffeine or pure virus.
1: Okay. So they just have a slurry right now, which they think contains this virus. It's called a
0: supernatant. And in that supernatant is, uh, surely there's viruses in there because they've put it through an extremely fine filter to get out the um, bacteria and fungus and stuff. But there's still a lot of stuff in this supernatant chemicals, um, uh, you know, cellular debris, all, all kinds of stuff uh, besides the, uh, the so-called the virus. So they, that's what they're working with. They take the supernatant and they put it into cell cultures along with a lot of toxins like um, um, very kidney toxic antibiotics and, and things like that. And then they see if this kills the cells, and it does, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it's got toxins in it. Especially kills what they call varro cells, which are monkey kidney cells, which they like to use.
1: Okay. Now, I I don't want to overlook the comment you made about the Spanish influenza not being infectious. Is that unique just to that 1918 outbreak, or is this influenza across the board that is not actually met? And I believe when you're talking about the criteria, is that Cox postulates that haven't been met? Yes.
0: Okay. So, Cox postulates, uh, um, they're actually called Rivers postulates for viruses. Basically, you have to completely purify and isolate the bacteria or the virus from a lot of sick people. You have to find it in a lot of sick people, and then inject that into well people and see if they get sick and that's uh, actually uh, never been done for any of these diseases so i there is a chapter in the book where i go through a lot of other diseases that were considered contagious Uh, we'll start with things like uh, beriberi and uh, excuse me pellagra and scurvy which were considered contagious and it makes sense you know you've got a lot of people living in a village they all get pellagra must be contagious. You have sailors on a ship, they all start to get scurvy. When they get off the ship, the scurvy goes away. So it must be contagious, right? right? And this notion of contagion really uh, held back the discovery of B vitamins and vitamin C uh, for a long time. Now no one would say that the uh, scurvy was contagious. Mm-hmm. I-, I talk about smallpox in there, which was definitely considered a contagious disease. And I talked about the work of Dr. Campbell in Texas, who was convinced that smallpox was caused by uh, bed bugs, which have a very toxic bite. And he was able to completely rid his clinic of smallpox. They were having an epidemic by cleaning up the beds, keeping the bugs out of the clinic, and also making people sleep in hammocks. <laughs> and also he um, get, uh, made sure everyone was getting fruits and vegetables and uh, ascorbic acid. And he had no cases of smallpox. And he talks about himself, how he tried to expose himself to rooms where people with smallpox had been. He shook uh, dust all over himself and he, he never got sick. So he, he didn't, he was convinced that smallpox was not contagious. It was caused by insect bites, yeah. And when you think about it, smallpox has completely gone away in the Western world uh, we have clean beds, we have vacuum cleaners, we have washing machines, we have window screens. We're not living with bugs anymore, the way people did in the past, and the people still do in, in countries that have not been westernized.
1: So this is counter to all the narrative that we've it ever is. been it's taught. It is.
0: It's completely counter, yes.
1: So with the smallpox, I just interviewed someone, a First Nations woman who was speaking of the smallpox, the spread of smallpox through her people and the use of smallpox blankets, as they're known. Now, are you with this, are you saying that it, in those blankets that were disseminated to First Nations people from small smallpox patients, it was the bed bugs and not yes, any sort was, of pathogen, yes, viral pathogen?
0: Right. Wow. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. I also talk about the Black Death of the 1400s, which went from the Mediterranean up to Iceland in the space of weeks. It was very fast spread of this disease. It wiped out whole villages. And people, the scientists, the epidemiologists really scratch their heads about this one because something that's contagious, for example, being spread by fleas or whatever, um, you know, the bacteria and fleas, and then from person to person would take a lot longer to spread. Well, what happened was there was a comet. There was a very low, close comet that went across all of Europe, south to north. And um, we now know that comets are not just pieces of rock. They're not just dirty snowballs. They're highly electrically charged and they give off a tremendous amount of radiation, including ionizing radiation, including x-rays. So this was a really bad comet, that people commented on the comet, and it went so fast, and it even killed people in Iceland where they didn't have rats at that time. So it, you know, the the contagion narrative does not fit the Black Death.
1: Right. So with something, such as the radio wave theory for the 1918 influenza. Radio waves are everywhere now.
0: Yes. They
1: are so much less powerful than all the other electromagnetic radiation that we're stewing in. How was there then a kind of a a phasing out or a fading out of that infective period? If radio waves didn't go away, then why did that death rate of the Spanish influenza not continue on? Uh,
0: This is a a wonderful question. And it is the question that has to be answered and that we tried to answer in our book. Uh, Well, so we talk about uh, exosomes. Now, exosomes are viruses. They look exactly like viruses. They have the same receptors as viruses. They're the same size. The theory is that viruses come from the outside. They somehow figure out how to invade your cell, to get through the cell membrane, which is very hard to do. And then they take over your cell and finally mess up all the genetic material in your cell and kill the cell. Well, the the difference there, the exosome starts in the cell uh, in response to an assault, an injury, a toxin, electromagnetic radiation, radio waves, uh, starvation, nutrient deficiencies. And they uh, do two things, two basic things. First of all, they surround uh, toxins or cellular debris and carry it out of the cell. But the other thing that they do is they go to other cells in your body and lock onto their receptors with a message what they are is little antennas surrounded by a protein coating and they have a message there's trouble here and you need to adjust and what we're proposing is that these things called viruses which are being called you know um, very harmful and they attack us are actually helpful exosomes that help us to adjust to new things in the environment and most people have adjusted to radio waves not everybody and most people have adjusted to cell phones but not everybody you know i have a employee who can't get near a cell phone so people you do adjust to a certain extent and it's these things we're calling viruses actually helpful exosomes that help us to do this
1: so (laughs) viruses and exosomes may be one and the same
0: one in the same. Yes.
1: And exosomes are created by all mammals, let's say
0: yeah, all cells a- a- in a response to. Injury, so not just,
1: assault. not just mammalian cells, but any cells.
0: Uh, well, that's a good question. I think, yes, uh, st- we talk about Stefan lonka in uh, Germany who discovered the first, um, uh, exosomes or yeah, well, he called them viruses, but, uh, in sea animals, in algae. So I would say, yes, all all living cells will produce these helpful compounds when they're Mm -hmm. under assault.
1: And then is there any harm to another species when being exposed to the exosomes from, let's say, sea algae? Is that maybe one way that illness is spread, that those exosomes actually are viruses, but they're created from other foreign sources?
0: I think, I think the answer is no, from what we know about exosomes, uh, they, okay. they're helpful. Now, a, a perfect analogy is what we've learned about bacteria. When Pasteur formulated the germ theory, uh, which was the germ theory is that every disease is caused by a specific bacteria that attacks us, okay? That's the germ theory. And we've seen a complete paradigm shift about bacteria just in the last 20 years. Uh, when, you know, 30 years ago, if you were in medical school and somebody was sick, the idea was, well, you sterilize them. You give them these really uh, uh, strong antibiotics. What are we talking about today? We're talking about probiotics. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. now we realize that bacteria are essential for life. They don't attack us. They. Uh, live in our guts and on our skin and everywhere in our body. And they have very beneficial and important roles to play. Uh, One of which is cleaning up of dead tissue. So when you have dead and dying tissue, the bacteria uh, arrive there and and clean up. Now, the bacteria can become harmful under certain conditions, such as um, let's just say a very uh, high pH or in conditions of sewage and things like this, they get harmful toxins, endotoxins. And this is what's harmful. It's not the actual bacteria. It's the situation (laughs) and the toxins that they give off.
1: So when we're talking about, for example, like Helibacter pylori, a common intestinal bacteria, which seems to be extremely damaging and dangerous and also infectious, that is actually not the case?
0: Well, this is the... um, ulcer bacteria, right? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they find it in ulcers. Ulcers are holes in the stomach where you're going to have a lot of dying tissue. Uh, Why do we assume that these are causing the ulcer?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's just like saying that firemen cause the fire because you always find firemen at a fire. And this is the assumption of the materialistic science that life is raw and tooth and claw, that there's this tremendous competition and uh, hostility and, and so forth. They see, they basically impose the economic system of the time onto biology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, why, why assume that? Why assume that nature is, is this way when all around us, we see cooperation in nature and that can be on the microscopic level as well.
1: Right. Wow, this is fascinating. Okay, and it's going to take me a so, bit to just digest give you a, all of this. Yeah, yeah, go for it.
0: So uh, Tom has gotten—he says he's gotten a hundred emails like this, saying, "Well, what about Semmelweis, yep. who was the doctor who uh, tried to get medical students to wash their hands before they delivered babies, uh, because he could show that if they wash their hands, uh, that you didn't get this um, um, fever and often death, this kind of you know, in right. women." and hard as he tried, he couldn't get them to change and then he committed suicide probably over this. But the thing is, these medical students had been working with cadavers, dead tissue, soaked in formaldehyde, which is a poison, and then they came and delivered babies you know, with their bare hands without washing them or anything. And uh, yeah, the women got poisoned by this and the poison mm-hmm. went through their bloodstream and they had a fever, which is the reaction to poison. And some of them died. So mm-hmm. we're not against washing hands, believe me. But we're what we're saying is there's another explanation for this besides bacteria.
1: Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the narrative I've heard of Semmelweis is different than that and that he was successful and that the age of hand-washing did ensue, and that's why we started to see a, a decrease in a lot of these things. But you're saying that he was actually unsuccessful.
0: Well, yeah. I think he sh- he proved this, but the doctors mm-hmm. didn't want to do it.
1: Okay. posthumously maybe but, he was who knows, successful. But so There's a yeah. lot of, okay. you
0: know, yeah. But I know that he did commit suicide.
1: Wow, okay.
0: But it, now, of course, we understand that you need to be sanitary. You need to be clean. Listen, I'm a cheesemaker. Mm-hmm. And I know that if uh, I leave cold water lying around in our fac- a little cheese factory, or if there's rust somewhere, we're gonna get listeria because that's what they love. And so you keep things uh, clean. That's all there is to it.
1: Right, let's go back to influenza.
0: Okay.
1: Is any, any of the influenza viruses, are they contagious?
0: Well, first of all, are there influenza viruses? That's the first thing we have to ask. And uh, yes, you do see people get influenza at the same time in the same household. But who knows, Uh, we we really, this is an epidemiological observation. There's no way uh, can you call it proof that something's contagious. Maybe they were exposed to the same bad um, fast food meal. Maybe they were, exposed to uh, some kind of toxin, maybe there's something in the water. Um, I've been reading recently about cosmic rays, you know, that cosmic rays, uh, the strength of them varies by the time of the year. And there's more cosmic rays in winter in the Northern hemisphere. So that's an explanation. And right now we're at a solar minimum where there's more cosmic rays. So mm-hmm. expect that maybe higher rates of what they're calling influenza.
1: And so the influenza virus, quote unquote, as we know it is, well, we also know there's many different variations of it. The possibility is it is simply exosomes that are being created by cells in the body. And if that's the case, then every cell is going to create, I would think something that is unique, like a snowflake. So in that case, there would be just a baffling number of of different exosomes and varieties of this so-called virus.
0: Yes, and in fact, you hear about this, oh, uh, the COVID virus has mutated 50 times already, or 100 times, or there's these mutations here and there. And uh, this is because (laughs) they're all different, you know, and it's not just one specific uh, species of virus, viruses aren't even alive, really, they are just little packets that uh, go around from cell to cell and say, hey, wake up, this is coming. So I think we need a whole different view of illness. Um, you know, we, all, we always assume that illness is bad. And yes, of course, we've seen people die after an illness, but the flu, I mean, I'm always grateful to get a cold or the flu. I get to rest for a couple of days for one thing,
1: Right. but right. I know
0: it's my body just trying to detoxify, Yeah. get rid of stuff and I always feel better afterwards. You know, Weston Price said, um, we don't die of disease. We get disease because we're dying. And I think that's extremely profound. Hmm. I mean, we assume that we die of disease. But disease comes along when we're malnourished or poisoned or you know assaulted by some kind of injury. And that's when we start to get what's called disease.
1: Whew. So much here to think about. Okay, so let's fast forward from 1918. We've had various outbreaks of influenza and other so-called infectious diseases in the 20th century and now into the 21st. What are some of the possible causes of these?
0: Well, we talk a lot about HIV AIDS in the book. And uh, you know, there's, there's a prize. If you can find that AIDS virus, there's a prize. And by the way, there's also a 100,000 euro prize in Germany, if you can show the existence of the measles virus.
1: Right, I've heard of that one.
0: Yeah, so um, AIDS was a real political thing. Uh, When the um, NIH was set up, and remember we had this war on cancer, the uh, idea was that a virus was, viruses were causing cancer, and this got nowhere, and their funding was... You know declining and going away and uh, so then all of a sudden they they said um, oh well we've got this new disease called AIDS and all kinds of things were uh, included in that rubric of AIDS you know TB and um, you know all kinds of diseases and these were all caused by this HIV virus that's what they said well they haven't found that virus um, you know, a lot of these diseases were because of taking drugs that uh, depressed the immune system. And you got a lot of symptoms because you've made it harder for your body to to live, to function. So I think a lot of people realize that the AIDS thing was a a bit of a scam. And also Mm -hmm. we've had all these other things like swine flu and Ebola. And remember, they were going to kill us all. And it turns out that they just kind of, out.
1: Right. Let's, with the AIDS thing, I think that's going to be a tough one for a lot of, well, I think a lot of this is going to be tough for people to to yeah. assimilate. But with the AIDS virus, or HIV rather, what did Robert Gallo or Luke Montagnier or even Judy Mikovits? then what did they discover as they were all involved in the so-called discovery of HIV in one way or another?
0: Well, we talk about Luke Montagnier. Uh, I I don't know how to answer the other questions. I think uh, Gallo and Mikovits, they're just, they're starting with the assumption that viruses exist. Okay. And, um, and it's kind of taking it from there. The antiviral medications, including the one called AZT, which had horrible side effects and killed a lot of people. A very good example of the treatment being worse than the disease. Now, Luc Montagnier uh, was a virologist, is a virologist, and we have a whole chapter called Resonance, and this is something that he discovered, although we're not sure that he understands the implications of his discovery. If you take a beaker of water and put some nucleic acids in, in that beaker of water, and then you take another beaker and put some fully formed DNA and RNA in that beaker and shine a light on both of them, the bits of nucleic acid and so forth will coalesce and eventually form the exact same DNA that's in the other beaker.
1: Okay. Can you walk me through that?
0: Okay. So you've got DNA in one beaker. Yeah. It has to be in water. Okay. Are these
1: from, are the nucleic acids from the same source?
0: Uh, no, we just random nucleic acids, you know, the, the building blocks of DNA.
1: Yeah. But not the same source as the DNA in the other beaker?
0: No, no. Okay. And then you put those in water in the same room, shine a light on them both, and the random nucleic acids will form into DNA that's identical to the DNA in the other beaker.
1: Okay, so what is the function of the light?
0: Uh, That's a good question. There has to be in water, which is a... um, a, you know, a, a medium of communication in, this, in a sense. Okay. And then the light is the uh, energy for mm-hmm. this to happen.
1: Okay. And then uh, this, sorry, I'm, I'm really trying to I know. wrap my head it's, around it's this one. It's quite
0: amazing. And what it tells us is that we don't, changes don't have to happen slowly. You know, the whole, uh, how do we adjust to things? Like, let's just say there's a toxin in the environment and one person by chance has a chance mutation and uh, develops an enzyme that will detoxify this toxin. But then for that enzyme to spread into the population and to give the competitive advantage, it takes generations and generations. And you know, it might be thousands of years before humanity is finally adjusted to this new toxin. And most of humanity has this enzyme. Well, this idea of resonance puts this uh, different, perspective on this. So there's some new toxin in the environment. Um, Somebody, uh, somebody has a biochemistry that can deal with this toxin, and his DNA is going to communicate to the DNA of people and animals around him. So we call this resonance. And this is another explanation for how we've gotten used to radio waves, for example. It's an explanation of how we change and adjust and accommodate new threats, new challenges in the environment. And it's beautiful, it's simply beautiful.
1: So with HIV and AIDS, we know that it at least was reported in the beginning to have started with the homosexual population, in particular in large metropolitan areas such as New York, Paris and San Francisco. So if there was not an infectious agent causing that, and we do know also that it seemed to, at least causally, it seemed to have spread from one partner to another. What could have been the explanation for that if it wasn't a contagious virus that was being passed from one individual to another?
0: well, it could have been a lifestyle that included a lot of drug use. Uh, it could have been diet, um, alcohol, uh, it could have been a lot mm-hmm. of things, and there were studies that tried to show that it was contagious one, from one partner to the another, and they never could prove that.
1: And what about patient zero, Gitan Dugas? He was a air steward, uh, mm-hmm. a flight attendant, on I believe from Paris, came to New York City, frequented there, uh, frequented the baths and in New York City, and there was this trail of infections that were all linked back to him because he was very promiscuous.
0: Mm-hmm. It could have been uh, maybe he was distributing some kind of drug. W- we don't know, but they never okay. found it. They never found a virus. And of course, remember, we were told that because it was infectious and a sexually transmitted disease, we were all going to get it and we were all going to die. I-, mm-hmm. I remember. I remember this. I'm a little older than you. And of course, nothing like that happened.
1: No, and I remember, it too, when Magic Johnson was tested positive, it seemed like, wow. this. And is... what
0: kind of tests were they were using? They were using these PCR tests,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which don't find a virus, which were not designed to um, diagnose any disease. They only pick up snippets of DNA. Can and... you,
1: I don't know mm-hmm. if it's your wheelhouse, but can you walk us through the PCR testing and yes. the potential fallacy uh, so... of it?
0: Yeah, so we have a whole chapter on these PCR tests, and these tests are used for for lots of things, and they've been used uh, quite a long time. They were developed by Kerry Mullis. It was a way of identifying uh, certain types of uh, genes, genetic material. And uh, it was, he said at the time, this cannot be used for diagnosis. So you take a swab from somebody, and honestly, all you have to do is take a swab from their their tongue. They don't have to put it all the way back against your brain, which is really really dangerous and painful. But they get some genetic material. It's just like um, you know the um, in the courts when they want your genetic material, you just give them some saliva, and they find some certain genetic material in this saliva, and um, they can um, you know figure out your, your genes, so to speak, but they can't tell you if you have a virus. It just, it doesn't work that way. This is not what, what it was for. And the way they get a positive, so you, they get a little bit of genetic material and then they amplify it by, it's like getting this genetic material to multiply, to multiply. And um, I think that they're set in the United States for 37 amplifications which will give them about 5% positive. If they set it for higher amplifications, they get 100% positive. So the test is, it's really fraudulent uh, to use the test in this way. And I remember there was a big scandal about in Florida, one lab was sending back 100% positive. Some woman who didn't even take the test got a letter saying that she was positive. (laughs) (laughs) So, So they've been really misused and this is, it's so tragic what's happened. You know, we're not saying that this, that this coronavirus uh, illness is just a bad case of the flu or that it's poor hospital care or, or whatever. And that is, you know, um, not something to worry about because we think this disease is very serious and is not gonna stop until we find out the cause and really look at it. And because they are using these uh, PCR tests to determine cases, so to speak, we're just being sent down a rabbit hole. We're looking in the wrong places and we're not doing the really good kind of epidemiology that we should be doing on this disease.
1: Right. And if the same polymerase chain reaction, the PCR test is done for HIV as it is for COVID, how does the test differ how do they uh, know? I don't think that... it
0: does. I don't think it does. I think you're getting people testing for AIDS, and then of course you've got a patient that you can give them ACT.
1: And, but what and, is what is the genetic material they are seeking, and how does that differ between an HIV potential patient and uh, a COVID potential patient?
0: Yes, that that I don't know.
1: Okay. That I don't know. And so with this PCR, it's. As you said, it's just the, the matter of what the magnitude of ampli- amplification yes, is. Yes. You can get 100% positive because they are looking for genetic material or it determines genetic material that we have been exposed or have created the exosome that is considered COVID?
0: Well, the genetic material that they say is the COVID positive genetic material comes from chromosome number eight in humans. Okay. really just saying that you're human. And if they get enough of it, they say there's a positive.
1: Hmm. And as we know, and I, Dr. Zach Bush is a, an amazing teacher of this, mm-hmm. like we are made of viruses. We're made of bacteria. We are walking petri dishes. And how we can say that this one is bad and this one is not, it We're, does seem we have a, a, biome a bit outlandish.
0: And yeah, we have a biome. Now we understand we have this biome. And this biome is helpful and supportive and essential really, until the conditions are bad and then the biome might be uh, creating some toxins. But uh, we also have a virome with a V. Mm-hmm. This is what we need to start recognizing. We need this paradigm shift from the viruses attacking us and taking over our uh, DNA and so forth. It's like out of you know really bad science fiction when you read some of this stuff. And, and to realizing that this virome is essential to life. And um, we couldn't survive without these uh, so-called viruses, yeah. which
1: are exosomes. And we've been hearing from the beginning, as far as asymptomatic carriers are concerned, in some cases, they're worse than symptomatic. And then the WHO turned around on that statement and said, well, actually, no, there's not any indication that asymptomatic people are transmitting it. And then they revoked that statement. Yes.
0: There was a woman who, who uh, we mentioned this, she said that there's no indication that asymptomatic people are spreading this. We don't have to worry. We really should just be looking at symptoms. And um, then that was retracted. and
1: yeah. And then I love Dr. Sherry Tenpenny's opinion on that, and she says that asymptomatic people are what we call healthy people.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the saddest thing is they are there have been a few statements saying, well, the the most dangerous people are children, asymptomatic children. So this is making children into the perpetrators, and Mm -hmm. this is a horrible thing. And then of course, we have the whole mask business. So wearing masks is predicated on the idea that you are exhaling dangerous infectious viruses uh, in your exhalations, and that you are protecting people uh, with your mask. Well, for one thing, we know that these masks don't prevent your uh, airborne (laughs) whatever, From coming out, they come out the sides and through through the mask, but they all uh, also make it very hard to breathe
1: and increase our carbon dioxide levels, which make us more acidic, yes. which decrease our our immune strength
0: it's one thing to have to wear a mask in a store and I go in and hold my mask out from my face so I can breathe but it's another thing to have to work all day wearing those masks yeah and that I it, it's just incredible that employees would be subjected to this
1: and if i've always struggled with this concept because if this so-called virus is so infectious that we have to wear a mask for fear of breathing two meters away or six feet away onto another individual why do they have to stick a q-tip up into your brain tissue to find this virus
0: exactly exactly that's a very dangerous test uh by the way the uh, lab that's um you know coordinating all this testing, uh, they've got your DNA now and it's in a database now.
1: Have there been any known injuries from? Yes, there
0: have. There've been a couple of deaths from this and I've had people write to us and say, I had a headache for a month and,
1: um,
0: just from the test. So of course we never hear that in the papers, but, and it's being given by people who are not medically trained. You know, and they put that thing all the way back here, uh, in your sinus against this membrane. It's, not, it's called a bone, but it's really a kind of um, soft bone that separates your brain from your sinus cavity, and then they twist it. Um, this, is, this is diabolical.
1: Yeah, someone who has no medical training is doing that. And
0: someone for, no medical training is doing this, and you might be squirming, and then it would be even more mm-hmm. dangerous.
1: And theoretically, they're doing it thousands of times, potentially a day, which greatly enhances the risk of injury.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And with this, and then using that genetic material for a PCR, which Carrie Mullis said was never intended for this, the inventor of it. When they are testing for this genetic material, since we haven't isolated a COVID-19 virus, and since we know there are dozens, if not hundreds, of coronaviruses... Are we, is the PCR basically just indicating that your body has potentially, again, either created the exosome that is coronavirus or been exposed to a coronavirus?
0: Uh, It might mean that you are producing a lot of exosomes in response to uh, nutrient deficiency or a, um, you know, air pollution or something like this. By the way, just going back to the uh, 5G, which of course is what we're saying is the the probable cause of this illness uh it's millimeter waves it's uh, microwaves it's apparently the effects are much worse in um when there's a lot of air pollution
1: okay well let's really okay. jump into actually
0: that. i think going back to we actually really haven't yeah this done this is <laughs> opening up
1: the can on that let's <laughs> jump into it because that is what you and dr cowern are theorizing that and many others have as well that yeah, 5g is potentially a cause or at the very least there's an extremely strong correlation so can There's you take a strong
0: a... epidemiological correlation. It has not been proven, but we need to to look at this. So we start with Wuhan, which is where this disease first appeared, and um, 5G was rolled out first place in the world that 5G was rolled out. They turned on 10,000 base stations, more base stations than the rest of the world, or at least in the United States, and all turned on in one city. And by the way, it was supposed to have started at this uh, uh, wholesale fish market. And there was a picture of this fish market in the New Yorker, in an article in the New Yorker, and I was looking at it very carefully. And there were, you could see the little 5G emitters on top of the um, you know, poles and the really? things like that. There, that. You could see them there. Anyway, then it uh, went to uh, Europe especially the more polluted areas of Northern Italy and Spain. Um, this, the country with the highest number of cases as a percentage of the population is the little country of San Marino, which has had 5G the longest. So they've had the longest exposure. And, and by the way, this is why we are so concerned about this, because it's not just one exposure that might make you sick, but it might be you know consistent chronic exposure to 5G and eventually your body can't stand it anymore and it gets sick. So if this is an ongoing thing, we're gonna see more and more illnesses from it. So then it went to New York where 5G was rolled out in New York. And again, in an um, area quite heavily polluted. Uh, I talk about the work of Stephanie Senoff who finds a strong correlation between the use of biodiesel and and, uh, coronavirus. And the biodiesel will have a lot of um, uh, glyphosate in the in the exhaust. And that apparently really disrupts lung function. So again, all this is, you know, many factors uh, put together, but, it, you know, it all boils down to living in a big polluted city with 5G is, is not a good thing to do.
1: If glyphosate is a potential... Problematic factor at least why or are we seeing this in in heavy farming heavy ag- agriculture areas where glyphosate is being used?
0: Why are we or are
1: we are we are, are we I don't know. Uh, are well, we seeing it?
0: we're seeing it spread uh, We've seen it spread from the very large cities to the smaller cities and now we're even seeing it in rural areas and uh, again uh, we need to look at this more closely I just learned that T-Mobile has what they call 5G light, which is not millimeter waves, but it's actually a lower frequency than 4G, but it's a frequency that uh, turns out to be particularly harmful to human beings and really resonates with the skin. So, uh, the, And that's what's going in in the rural areas. If you drive across the United States right now on a big highway, you will see the huge powers and they're adding these additional, they look like tin cans up in the towers. And these are the 5G light uh, that T-Mobile is putting in. There's there's a lot of epidemiological evidence. We have a lot of studies showing that the uh, uh, frequencies of 5G are harmful, uh, especially in circum- certain circumstances, like if you have metal in your body. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, so there is enough uh, observations, epidemiological observations, there's enough uh, studies showing harm for us to um, dedicate some funds to this and really look at it. But of course, this is not being done.
1: What is it about 5G in particular? I know it has some pretty harsh impacts potentially on the body. How does that differ from the radio waves of 1918 and then from the, I don't know, what do we have the well, radar was and another 4G. one, okay.
0: and 2G, 3G, 4G. What's really happening is that the frequencies are getting um, more rapid. So there's more waves per minute or per second. Right. And you're going right up against the ultraviolet. So this is what's called the microwave range, uh, gigahertz range. And of course, then you have uh, ultraviolet visible light uh, uh, infrared and let's see am I getting this right but anyway above that you have the ionizing radiation which is x-rays so um, and who knows there might be some x-rays in this too we just we just don't know but the it, it is the, the frequencies that are in your microwave microwave
1: okay now there's been huge opponents outcry against 5g for a long time since yeah. as long as I can remember hearing a 5g Why is it that you think this has been pushed forward so aggressively with such little testing and (sighs) with the, I don't know how many thousands, or is it even millions of satellites that are being put into space to run this network? That's a big
0: concern too. That's a really big concern, which we do write about in the book. Well, everyone wants a cell phone. Everyone wants a cell phone that works everywhere. Uh, Everyone wants us you know, rapid downloads, at least that's what they say. But I think there's other reasons as well. If you are, um, if your goal is to track everybody, including what they buy and uh, whether, and you know, this universe of things where everything you buy has a little transmitter on it, uh, you need something more than 4G. You need a lot more uh, bandwidth, as as you call it, and that's what the 5G uh, gives you. The good news about 5G is that it doesn't penetrate walls, and even trees will stop it. So it doesn't work uh, once you get out of the big cities, and it doesn't work it doesn't go into your living space. Yet, yet, <laughs> they're working on getting it into your living space. Or... But does
1: it come into your living space when you're transmitting it into your living space?
0: Well, that's that is a very interesting question uh, because you've got these new 5G phones, and I don't understand all this very well, but I do know that two people have told me just in the last couple of days they got a 5G phone and they can't use it because they can't touch it. When they put their Mm -hmm. hand against it, the hand feels almost like it's gonna fall off.
1: Wow, So there's something
0: being emitted from these phones as well as what the phones are receiving.
1: Incredible. And so you've seen this correlation, and I've, I've seen it too. With the maps of the so-called outbreaks of coronavirus, have very closely aligned with the with the five G towers and where they've rolled out five G. Well,
0: and and the five G is not really on towers. It's because it, if you put it way up high in a tower, it doesn't go very far. You have to have them. I think it's about fifty, maybe it's fifty feet or fifty meters apart. Uh, and that's why they're really being put on buildings. They're putting okay. on the top of uh, um, traffic light poles and, and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what I meant when I meant towers, more like on top of telephone What's going poles, on the I'm towers
0: saying. apparently is the 5G light, which is the T-Mobile okay. the type okay. of 4G.
1: And then what we heard from Northern Italy is the government, even though it was originally a massive hotspot, the, the government of Italy eventually backtracked saying, no, up to, I'm going to get the percentage wrong, but it was, I think, over 90% of the cases that they said were COVID, they actually said, no, those actually weren't COVID.
0: Well, they had comorbidities. So I think they it was almost 95% of the people who died had comorbidities. In other words, they had o- overweight or heart disease yeah. or... Yeah. Kidney problems or lung disease. Uh, the really disturbing thing is the autopsies of people that have this disease, not just tested positive, but really had all the symptoms of hypoxia and difficulty breathing and kind of complete breakdown and then and die. Um, the autopsy shows that the lungs are almost unrecognizable. The lungs are so damaged and destroyed. So, what what the 5G seems to do is prevent the hemoglobin from carrying oxygen, uh, and actually, it actually robs the hemoglobin of the iron molecule. So that iron molecule is now uh, free, and you, we know that free iron is very toxic and very damaging to the body. And then your red blood cells going through your, you know, your circuitry there or your um, blood vessels it, uh, is not. Providing oxygen to to the cells. I mean, it's just a horrible uh, kind of death, really.
1: So we're seeing suffocation because suffocation,
0: hemoglobin yeah, hemoglobin is ag-
1: not getting again.
0: To... Yeah, we've been accused of making light of this, and that's far from it. That's not what we're doing. We're we're, we're trying to warn people. This is serious. It's going to get worse. Uh, the longer we're exposed. And unless we really focus on the cause, uh, we're not gonna solve the problem.
1: And so if 5G is causing that inability for hemoglobin to bind with the oxygen, therefore reducing our oxygen within our body, then wearing masks is only gonna exacerbate <laughs> yes. that condition. Yes.
0: Absolutely, even worse,
1: yes. And then we're also, we're not expelling the same amount of carbon dioxide, we're rebreathing that into yes. our body. Yes. And further kind of causing this traffic jam within our, our blood system, our circulatory exactly. system. Exactly.
0: I think what Oof. we're going to see is a gradual uh, depopulation of the cities. And we've all, we're already seeing this in the real estate market. Um, Are we
1: talking about migration or death?
0: Both. I think it's both. Either people move out or they will die.
1: Because we um, haven't been seeing an increase in death rate, though, have we, over this last six months or so?
0: That I, I don't know, uh, because, you know, the problem is, again, the health the health authorities have so screwed this up. People were calling things death of COVID because it got more money to the hospital. Traffic
1: accidents were COVID related. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because it's really tragic. No, it's, 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 really it's tragic, horrible. But, um, they got thirty-nine thousand dollars from Medicare if they had a patient that died of COVID, and um, you know only I think it's only ten thousand or four thousand if they right. just died of the flu. So all of a sudden, nobody's getting flu and everybody has COVID. So again, these death rates are very suspect. Yeah. But you know, there's also possibility that more people are dying of this than we think because you know they have, their symptoms may be different or right or what and so we just we just don't know uh whether the death rate's going up or down or the um, number of people sick is going up or down because of the incompetence and the complete failure of the public health system to to look at this properly
1: right and what we have seen though pretty much across the globe is we've not seen this radical increase in death rate Uh, If anything, I saw statistics where it was actually slightly down for this year Mm -hmm. than the year previous Mm -hmm. because it seems that we are seeing a drastic decrease in things like influenza deaths and heart attack and respiratory related deaths because they're all being categorized as COVID death. But if this is such a massive pandemic that is affecting everyone in the world, then why are people not dying in droves? And, and I also don't want to belittle it. I know people are getting sick. I know people are having terrible uh, respiratory illnesses, but it does seem a bit suspicious that that we're seeing, a, at the same time we're seeing a rise in COVID, we're seeing a drop in all these other things. Mm-hmm. And I actually just heard today that one of the major tracking organizations uh, maybe it was even the CDC said they're not going to track influenza statistics for this year, which would be like the first time in a hundred plus years they haven't tracked yeah. influenza. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's, it's, well, I've only heard that secondhand, but that's yeah. it's called,
0: kind of fishy. Yeah. At the same time, I think a, a lot of people um, are are doing the right thing. I, I was reading about a woman, this was in the Washington Post, you know, and she she was a nurse. She said, I all I know about is drugs, but I got it. I got this disease and I did not go to the hospital. I just went home and rested and took hydroxychloroquine and vitamins and tried to eat a good diet and I recovered. Mm-hmm. So it has been a wake up call for a lot of people. The other thing I find really interesting, we live out in the country, Southern Maryland, it's not even a, you know, a chic place to live out here. and A year ago, there were probably 15 properties for sale in our area that we would drive by. They are all sold. They've all sold. Yeah. And people are just moving out of the cities. For one reason or another, they get this idea that it's not good to be in cities. Maybe even if they think it's infectious, um, (laughs) there's a lot more people in the cities. So they're moving out.
1: Do you... Talk about the vaccine that is apparently forthcoming. Can we talk about that?
0: Yes. So these vaccines that are being developed, uh, we describe the process of developing these vaccines involves lots of toxins, not necessarily even having a virus, growing these things uh, on, you know, monkey kidney cells and things. Um, They have to add an adjuvant, which is usually aluminum, but these vaccines are different than what we've had before. They are given with a three-pronged needle and a little electric kick to make the cell wall open. And so this stuff will go right into your cells. Now normally your cells keep keep this kind of thing out. There's rumors that they will actually have a chip or a little um, dye in them so you can be tracked have you had this vaccine. They're they're completely experimental vaccines unlike anything we've seen before. And the trials have not gone well. Uh, There've been a lot of injuries, a lot of sickness, a couple of deaths and a couple of the companies have uh, actually stopped. working on these vaccines, at least temporarily. So, um, and the public is uh, well aware of this and the, their biggest concern is the what they call vaccine hesitancy, that people just are not gonna get this vaccine. Well, that's a good thing. It's, it's, yeah. uh, people are waking up, you know, when we have a lot of calamities in the world, it usually means it's time for something to change, you know? and it's time for some change here time for a change in attitudes time for people to wake up and realize that their health is their own responsibility not something they go to a doctor to give them a pill or a shot or whatever and hopefully I, i'm the i'm the eternal optimist my staff calls me the abominable yes monster and <laughs> and i just i just i'm trying to look at the, all the good things that can come
1: from this hmm What have you found? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah,
0: me. I think people are waking up. I think they're waking up to the dangers of the, the Wi-Fi revolution. I think they're waking up to the need to take care of themselves. I think a lot of people are waking up to the problems with this whole idea of vaccination.
1: Yeah. Now, in in saying that, I think you also are referring to vaccination in general, Yes, right?
0: yes. We've taken a very strong stand against vaccinations. Uh, first of all, because w- we don't believe these diseases are caused by uh, germs or viruses or whatever. But secondly, because people need to take responsibility to be healthy uh, on their own with a good diet yeah. and good and the right kind of lifestyle.
1: Yeah. And of course, you're receiving a lot of heat for that. You're being vilified as being oh, yeah. a so-called anti-vaxxer. Yeah. And... It's interesting, because I'm thinking, too, with my background in traditional Chinese medicine, which has been practiced for thousands of years.
0: And, and by the way, has no concept of contagion.
1: That's what I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. We we have pathogenic factors that we talk about, but the pathogenic factors are not defined to this micro level where an actual virus or any particulate is isolated it's a pathogenic factor such as and it's lost in translation but in English we talk about it as wind or heat or phlegm Mm -hmm. or dampness Mm -hmm. and I know that some people might think well that's that sounds ridiculous but it's just simple it's terminology that means more in the original language but ultimately Mm -hmm. it's just referring to these factors that we're exposed to be they toxins or environmental factors or whatever it may be but there is no concept of of viruses and yet the system has been effective for thousands of years in treating illness and helping to restore health and billions of people
0: and ayurvedic also has no Mm -hmm. concept of contagion Uh, The Chinese medical system has definitely shown us that the body is an electrical body. Um, This is putting it very simply, but acupuncture is the whole idea is to kind of get rid of excess um, electrical charge in different parts of the body. And um, so it's all based on the notion that we are electrical beings. And so, of course, we are going to be affected by electricity outside of our bodies, yeah, especially very strong currents, very strong electromagnetic fields, very strong uh, electromagnetic frequencies.
1: And it's not uncommon with the practice of acupuncture to insert a needle and have a patient shake, uh, and in some cases even convulse, and it seems like this electrical energy is dissipating, it's being released from the body.
0: Well, the pictures in Wuhan, and of course these are called fake news, you know, these are scams that's what they say but they show people who fall down in the street and then they shake they they go through convulsions hmm. before they die they wow. just it goes on and on and um you know it's not a virus. a virus doesn't cause this kind of thing this is like saying that a virus causes epilepsy you know that's just yeah. ridiculous
1: i i'm gonna go on a small tangent here because i feel like i have you the expert on both food and vaccines peanut proteins are used a lot in vaccines. Do you think the current epidemic of peanut allergies is connected to that?
0: Oh, what an interesting question. And it's particularly interesting for me because my father, uh, when he was in the Air Force, had a very bad reaction to a vaccination and they told him it was the peanut oil in the vaccination. Oh, wow. Yes, I think that could have a lot to do with it. If You are injecting uh, peanut proteins into the bloodstream, um, uh, bypassing, circumventing the digestion. And, you know, when we eat a toxin or a protein that's hard to digest, or even a foreign protein, we have this all kinds of protective mechanisms, starting with our good bacteria, that keeps this from getting into the bloodstream. But when you do a vaccination that you are bypassing all that protective structure. And we have vaccinations uh, with peanut proteins uh, being given to babies one day old when the uh, the whole system is extremely immature. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a definite explanation. Again, an epidemiological observation. Right. And it needs, you know, it needs some more work on it.
1: And I think egg protein could probably be a... Be, uh, Explored more in that light as well, because egg protein is often.
0: And I, um, the even giving egg whites to a baby is is a bad idea because they that all those barriers are just not there yet. Mm -hmm. We we recommend egg egg yolks for the baby. Well, starting at six months, and um, pureed liver, and you know all clean ingredients for the baby.
1: Right. You said earlier that there is a European prize 100,000 euros for someone who brings forth the measles virus
0: proves proves the existence of the measles virus
1: hasn't yeah. happened yet that's has well, been... gone to
0: court it's gone okay. to the highest levels of the german court to the german supreme court somebody mm-hmm. tried to claim the prize and the court ruled that he had not proven the existence of the measles virus
1: okay so no one yet has stepped forward with proof to claim that prize. So basically, what, what
0: see what what they do? They get the supernatant, which is not completely purified. So they don't just have the virus; they got a lot of other stuff. They do PCR tests. Uh, they char- they think they've characterized. Um, you know, I think they might get 30 or 40 of the um, DNA characterized out of about 30,000. And then you know what they do? They put these, the few little bits that they have, into a computer program and generate the rest of this uh, virus, okay? And a different university will do a different program, they'll get a different characterization of the virus. And you know how they come to the conclusion of what the measles virus is? They do it by consensus, it's like by a vote. And okay. this is called science. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs>
1: And so something known as measles, which whatever it is, Mm -hmm. given the name of measles, it used to be a skin condition with a little bit of a fever. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: it was only in very rare circumstances that someone would have a greater harm as a result of that. And in the case of extremely malnourished or... Yeah,
0: uh, especially vitamin A deficiency. yeah, Mm -hmm. And
1: potentially other comorbidities. And yet a lot of the vaccine propaganda is... Uh, surrounding measles and how measles was conquered with vaccines. Mm-hmm. How do how do we then uh, justify the decrease in measles yeah. that somewhat correlates with the vaccine timeline?
0: And, and also how do we explain measles parties? Yes. where you put a few people a few kids with the measles or even one kid with the measles and, and the other kids get sick and that's a, that's a more difficult one, especially since we don't have a virus. so what same
1: with chickenpox.
0: Yeah. So, uh, as far as a decline in these diseases, or at least in um, uh, severe cases of these diseases, that was happening long before the vaccinations. And that's true of all of the diseases that we vaccinate for. These declines followed the cleanup of the water and the, you know, putting uh, sewage systems in, uh, just being cleaner and um, more sanitary. And this is what can take the credit for the decline in these uh, diseases. Now, measles is a little bit different because it's generally a mild disease that occurs around the age of seven. And we think this concept of resonance, which I described earlier, is really what's being uh, transferred from one child to the next. So a child has the measles. Uh, it's it's a, a something that's... Um, sort of time-based just like at a certain time most boys go through puberty or most girls get their period Um, or if you put a lot of women together in a cabin and three months later they all get their periods at the same time it's the resonance uh between the uh, cells and the and the different uh, people so the body i what we're proposing is that measles is a natural cleansing that occurs around age seven when the chi- the, you're going from a child to um, a young adult, so to speak. It happens at that time to kind of cleanse you and get ready for the next uh, step in your growth and development. Uh, we know that children who do have the measles uh, are healthier as adults. They get less of certain types of cancer I had a really severe case of the measles as a child. Unfortunately, my mother didn't take me to the doctor or anything. She just put me in a dark room and, you know, brought me soup and and uh, milkshakes and things like that. And uh, I, I credit, I'm so grateful that I had this really uh, bad case of the measles because I think um, it's given me a lot of stamina and, and strength and uh, good health. So, uh, so the measles parties, you know, one child's gotten the measles. It's sort of like he can communicate to the other children. You know, this is a good time for, for you to have the measles too, because you should have the measles. I know it's kind of a hard thing to wrap your, your head around, but that, yeah. it all goes along with this concept of resonance. Okay. But we need a different explanation than virus because no one's found this virus.
1: Yeah. And some measles aside. Well, and actually I will before we leave that. He talked about the widespread sanitation and just cleaning up our environments in general, seeing all of these so-called infectious diseases drop precipitously at about that time. And in some cases, the vaccines weren't introduced until a decade or more after that. But if you look at the data, they started to decrease before the vaccines came along, all at about the same time and all about when sanitation started to happen.
0: Right, right. Just a, a really good example. Until the late 1890s, the water for the city of Chicago came from the same place in the lake that the sewage was dumped in. Oh, well, that's
1: a yeah. great form of recycling. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, you know, we, you had things like typhus and cholera, and these are sewage borne diseases. And uh, yeah, you, once you cleaned up the water, which is not particularly sexy, it's not going to make you famous, it's not going to make a lot of money for you. It's just hard patient work to get things uh, cleaned up, uh, that's that's what contributes to good health. Right,
1: But are typhus and cholera not infectious?
0: Well, even those people who are infectious disease people are all in agreement that for cholera, the main thing you need to do is clean up the
1: water. Is the water, okay. Yeah. So the bacteria is bacterial, is that correct?
0: Well, there there's gonna be a lot of bacteria in sewage water, right, yeah. in dirty water. But what is killing you? Is it the uh, poisons that the bacteria make because they're in sewage? Is it the gases from the sewage? Is it the poisons from the sewage? Or is your
1: body making cholera or presenting the opportunity for cholera to come in and try to clean you up? But it just so happens that the toxins are overwhelming. Overwhelming. you. Yeah.
0: I talk a lot about malaria in the book. Because it's said to be a mosquito-borne disease, but mm-hmm. there were areas where they had malaria where they didn't have mosquitoes, and particularly in northern England, and it was it was a swamp disease.
1: Okay. What about and the cleaning and, up around Panama and the the making of the Panama Canal? It yeah. Was... Well, of
0: course, they were uh, really exposed to. Um, a lot of swamp gases, and these swamp gases are, are toxic, you know, mm-hmm. hydrogen and
1: sulfate, and, yeah. Ma- malaria means bad air originally. Yeah, yeah. But when in the Panama region, when they did, well, history anyway, says when they got rid of all the standing pools of water and, yeah. and got rid of all the mosquito larvae, that the disease or the infection rate of malaria went yeah, down
0: I think it was yellow fever was another another one yeah.
1: is that just because they got rid of all that toxic water that was just oh, standing around
0: uh, partially but i also think uh cutting down on mosquitoes too and not because mosquitoes carry disease but because they have a very strong toxin in their bite and mm-hmm. insect toxins are something that nobody talks about but um uh, this is what we need to look at. And by the way, they tried to transfer the so-called COVID virus to mosquitoes, and they were not successful. In doing
1: this. Okay. Speaking of the transfer of the COVID virus, I believe Dr. Cowan, I was learning about how they have never been able to show that it is infectious. And the one study where they were involved some pretty harsh um, drilling into monkey skull. Is that correct?
0: Right. Well, this is... Um, what uh, Pasteur did to try to show that something was infectious because try as he may he could not transfer diseases by just what we would consider the normal way like breathing on somebody or or whatever or putting a sick monkey with a well monkey and so he would make what he called virulent uh, so it might be virulent rabies or virulent anthrax or whatever it was and which was using a lot of harsh chemicals, passing it through animals several times. And um, then what he would do is drill a hole in the skull of the monkey or the rabbit or whatever and inject this stuff into the brain. And yeah, it did make them sick. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) And that's still going on today, or at least until recently, that's how they were trying to show that these diseases were infectious.
1: Okay. I have my timeline uh, a bit off yeah, on no, that, but that, okay. but that's
0: not the normal way that uh, we, uh, we pass bodily fluids from one person.
1: No, each. no. Speaking of passing bodily fluids and infections, what about sexually transmitted diseases?
0: Again, uh, we we, don't, we haven't answered all the questions about this, but we think that resonance has a lot to do with this. Okay. Um, we talk about herpes, and uh, Tom Cowan has treated herpes by having people. Take a lot of broth and vitamin C, and these people who have caught herpes suddenly don't get herpes anymore. So, Hmm. uh, you know, sex is a highly charged activity that involves a certain amount of friction, (laughs) and if you don't have good collagen in your skin, you're going to get things that look like infectious disease.
1: Hmm. Okay. So all of this is going to sound like craziness to so many people. I know, I know you're you're bat crazy but i'm bat
0: crazy yeah
1: <laughs> why are you being censored then because you're just you're just a crazy just a optimistic crazy monster who's yeah. <laughs> who's raging on about these things why is your book being censored on amazon
0: well i think it's not something that uh, they want people to even think about this notion that they're actually oh there's no virus could it be 5g oh yes we got 5G in our street last week and I've been feeling bad. You know, they don't want people to start thinking about this mm-hmm. uh, because it destroys the whole narrative. And the narrative is uh, universal lockdown, wearing masks, the destruction of small businesses worldwide, uh, sending millions of people into poverty, um, a, va- a vaccine that everyone will have to take in order to travel, uh, Wellness cards. You can't travel unless you or go into a store or whatever. You know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but you know this whole idea of controlling people more. Uh, I think it um, it makes people start thinking about this kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, it is a well, crazy you know, time.
0: It is t- the wild and crazy times. Uh, we, we really tried to end on a uh, note of hope. What can you do? We had some very practical suggestions for your home to clean up the electro smog in your home. Uh, just like uh, 100 years ago, people put toilets into their houses and didn't have outhouses anymore. And things they had showers and things got a lot cleaner. Uh, after the rush into the Industrial Revolution, which created these extremely filthy cities and everything. We had to clean up. Okay, now we've rushed into the wireless technology, really without thinking about it. That's just the way we are. You know, we're we're, we're headstrong and uh, reckless, right? Yeah. Uh, now right. we've got to clean up. And there's things you can do in your house. You definitely want to be wired in your house. You turn off your Wi-Fi, especially at night. You don't want Wi-Fi in your bedroom at night. All that's easily turned off. Um, you know, don't use your phone, cell phone very much. I, I'm, we're not telling people to get rid of their cell phones, but have a landline and only use your cell phone when you need it. Um, in your computer, there's a lot of things you can turn off on your computer that make it a lot safer. We, we really recommend people have a meter, an EMF meter, so they can see where the hot spots are in your house. So that's one thing. And then the diet is another thing that can really help. We, we talk about the our wiring in our bodies is really the water in our bodies. The so water structures itself against the cell membranes, tissue membranes, and creates exclusion zones that are negative in charge, like a wire. And so you want really good, strong cell membranes. It's, it's like having good insulation on your wires and that means lots of saturated fat you know good old animal fats completely avoid the polyunsaturated vegetable oils which make your cells uh, cell walls um, um, easily damaged fragile and floppy and that's not a good thing for um, you know the water in your cells and by the way we mentioned one study where this they have a tank uh, a plastic tank with water in it and the water structures itself against the hydrophilic surface and makes an exclusion zone that's negative in charge. You put a router against uh, that uh, exclusion zone and it will shrink by 15%. Uh-huh. So what what makes us alive is the, the water in our, the structured water in our bodies and we know that um, routers and Wi-Fi and everything will definitely affect um, th- the water in your body and the uh, energy producing uh, qualities of your mitochondria also.
1: So with the decreasing of that exclusion zone, are those the things that happen?
0: That's that's what happens. And then mm-hmm. your wiring is just not working as well. And it's more vulnerable to uh, what's coming in from the outside.
1: Mm-hmm. And Sally, you, Speaking of the water, you talked earlier about the resonance in the nucleic acids. If this resonance is happening and nucleic acid in, in one jar will turn into the exact genetic material that's placed in another jar, what is keeping us from all becoming genetic, genetically identical beings? Clones.
0: Well, that's a great question. <laughs> I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Um, I think that the resonance factor has a very good local effect in our cells, but I'm not sure that it affects, you know, the shape of our bodies or, or anything like that. We're still individuals. Okay. But okay. I, I, that is a great question. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> why don't we all become frogs or, you know, right. <laughs> resonance? <presidents? laughs>
1: Whoever we spend most time with.
0: Well, this does uh, explain why it is when you're in a room with a happy people, you feel better. And why you go to stay with your relatives who are morbid and morose and pessimistic and (laughs) fighting all the time, you can't wait to get out of there Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: you don't feel good in that kind of atmosphere.
1: Mm -hmm. That's why I love spending time with my animals. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and animals have a
0: beautiful resonance if they're well cared for. Yeah. And animals in service to man are, that's what makes them happy. So... Yeah. I love being around my cows. You know, they're very well cared for. Uh, we know they're providing us with uh, wonderful food, and, and uh, they're happy cows. And you do feel yeah. good around them. Yeah. By the way, speaking of cows, uh, I do talk about raw milk in this book. Another one of my, yep. you know, iconoclastic Hashes. positions, shocking yep. positions, and and uh, we do recommend raw milk or uh, cultured milk because it's our best source of glutathione. Okay. Fresh glutathione, which really, really helps us uh, detoxify. Cheese will not have that. Cheese is a great food, but it will not have the glutathione that's in the way.
1: Right. And Sally, I'm going to recommend to the listeners a little shameless promotion here, but on Pacific Rim College Online, you have a course called Achieving Optimal Health Through Nourishing Traditional Diets. It's a nine-hour course. I presume you are you cover a lot of this health-related nutrition yeah. aspects in that course. That was
0: a wonderful weekend. That was okay. a really fun weekend.
1: So people can check so, that out. I'll put that in the show notes.
0: So I'm going to be shamelessly promoting just for a moment. the Contation Please do. I was, I was going uh, to offer that to you. You can't get it on Amazon right now. Books a Million has it. Okay. Uh, Simon & Schuster has it. DrTomCowen.com has it. Okay. You can just... Google the contagion myth, and you'll find sources for the book. You'll also find two or three that are giving you a download for free. Okay. Pirates. Mm. uh, Please, if you respect authors, do not do this. Please uh, pay for the book. You can get a notebook from Barnes and Noble Uh, not much money, but authors deserve to be paid. (laughs) And also my blog is nourishingtraditions.com. We're doing updates all the time. We're keeping, we keep finding new material. I'm just about to uh, post a new blog, um, what we've discovered recently. And Tom Cowan's blog is at drtomcowan.com.
1: Okay. Is your blog being censored at all?
0: I don't know. Um, by Nothing's censoring, been I mean, re- hard to find. You know, have any
1: posts been removed?
0: No, no, no.
1: Okay. And do you know if Google is actually crawling and tracking those or are they coming up on google well, I, searches i know
0: that they changed their um algorithm for finding things a couple of years ago and uh the weston a price foundation's ratings dropped mm. they've actually come up again uh, to where they were before but okay um you have to be much more specific in your searches today yeah than yeah. than you were before
1: and so the contagion myth did you publish that through nourishing trends
0: New trends, No, um, we. Sorry, new
1: Trends. Skyhorse
0: apology. Publishing. I'm very okay. pleased with Skyhorse. They didn't make us change anything. The president loves controversy. <laughs> <And> he <laughs> <that's> <laughs> he loves to publish both sides of the, um, you know, of the question. So he published a book on why we shouldn't wear masks, and then he published a book on why we should wear masks. <laughs> so I said, well, have you found the book that um, <laughs> <laughs> go, you know, be the um, the uh, response to our book, but he says he
1: hasn't found it. Sounds like an interesting person to interview. Yeah.
0: And so we've really enjoyed working with him and it has been a challenge uh, with the banning on uh, Amazon, but in a way it's worked in our favor because, you know, people are very interested. Why, why in the world would this be banned on Amazon? It's not about Mm -hmm. child porn. It's not about how to build a bomb. It's science.
1: It's science.
0: In fact, we studiously avoid any political discussions in this book we don't talk about um, people in politics or in the government at all we're just talking about the science
1: yeah well i think it demonstrates the importance of this book and people finding a copy and reading it because there is so much valuable information and just to get a different perspective from the mainstream narrative
0: yes just please you know you don't have to agree with this but read the book and let it sink in and, and do a little bit of thinking.
1: Yeah, and I will say to promote you, all of your books, they're iconic, they're classic, so I encourage everyone to check out any of your books from the past. New Trends Publishing, I know, is where you've published many of them. Uh, they're incredible resources. And, and
0: Hachette, uh, Grand Central, published three books of mine, too. So
1: Okay, great. Uh, Sally, any other places you want people to check out or any other words of optimism or inspiration well, I would you would say like the western a
0: price foundation and i hope you'll okay. become members uh, i think we've been in the forefront of warning people about the dangers of 5g we have we've been publishing stuff about this for 2 years now so we really were early in saying hey this may not be such a good idea mm-hmm. and then we've published the um, articles i've written about contagion and so forth so right I just wrote an article about anthrax, which is very interesting. You know, anthrax was a huge problem with um, livestock in the 1800s. And Pasteur tried to find a vaccine for anthrax, which didn't work, which killed a lot of sheep. But then all of a sudden, anthrax just went away. It's Nobody considers it a serious disease anymore. So, so why? And turns out that one thing that changed was they stopped using arsenic in the sheep dip. Using some other poison now, but it's not arsenic, and the symptoms of anthrax are identical to the symptoms of arsenic poisoning. So here's awesome. a here's a disease that was considered contagious, no longer considered contagious. It's no longer considered an infectious disease, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a kind of poisoning.
1: Right. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Something more to think about. And and you also, just uh, speaking of censorship, you also just recently had your upcoming conference, Wise Traditions Conference. Oh, we were conference so sad about canceled. that.
0: We, uh, well, we were slated to be in Portland, Oregon, and we didn't think that was a very good place to have a conference. In fact, we couldn't have had a conference. And then we thought, well, we'll do this in Georgia, because the governor of Georgia said that he wouldn't uh, enforce any mask mandates. So, we had a, a contract with a hotel that said you don't have to wear masks. And they broke our contract, not because of the masks, but because they just got a better offer. So, yeah, we're definitely going to do something about that. And then we just were not able to find a hotel that would honor the mask, uh, no masks. So, we very reluctantly had to cancel.
1: Yeah, and you had such an amazing lineup of speakers from yeah, Del Bigtree really to did. Dr. Andrew Kaufman and Robert yeah. Kennedy. So, yeah. Del, Bigtree, sorry to hear that. Andrew, yeah.
0: Andrew Wakefield. Yeah.
1: Well, I hope there's you find other ways to get that information out to people. Oh
0: well, we definitely are are doing that.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I have really enjoyed reconnecting with you. Well, I, I
0: look forward to coming again. I have a son who lives in Bellingham, Washington, okay. who's actually escaped to Canada right now oh, really? with his girlfriend. And um, I would love to have an excuse to come out. Again.
1: Yeah, please do. And congratulations on your book being censored and being considered <laughs> crazy by so many. Mm-hmm. And I, I, will admit i think a lot of your your ideas or theories are a bit radical and yeah. but that's one thing i love about you is you're not afraid to put things out there and to question the norm and and challenge the narrative that we're all being spoon-fed so yeah, I, right. I really thank you for your courage in doing that well and it's for, been a
0: lot of fun it's really been a lot of fun
1: and for your eternal optimism too so thank you so much <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for having me, Todd, and look forward to talking again.
1: Thanks, Sally. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Sally Fallon Morell. To learn more about Sally and her work, visit her website, nourishingtraditions.com. Please also buy a copy of her new book, The Contagion Myth, which is co-authored by Dr. Thomas Cowan. You can also learn directly from Sally by enrolling in her Pacific Rim College online course, Achieving Optimal Health Through Nourishing Traditional Diets. If you are interested in studying holistic nutrition, Pacific Rim College's School of Holistic Nutrition is a leading school in Canada offering a live online four-month certificate program and a live online 2100-hour diploma program. Enrollment spaces do fill quickly, so apply early to avoid disappointment. Visit pacificrimcollege.com for more. If you are looking for online education and holistic nutrition, explore the amazing courses offered at pacificrimcollege.online, including Sally's aforementioned course. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, share and debate and see what learning opportunities arise.